Leviticus chapter 10 and in a copy of the confession if you have it back to paragraph 2 of chapter 22. We have a very simple confession of faith in this paragraph, but I want to root it in this story that was referenced two Lord's Days ago, the story of Nadab and Abihu. As I was thinking back there, you know, I wish that I wish that we could instill the fear of God in one another in in our speech or in our demeanor. Maybe if I could I thought maybe if I could speak harshly enough or or somber enough uh, that that would somehow convey something of the fear of God that is at the root of biblical worship. And I realize that I, I can't do that. Um, the fear of God is something that He must give, and He gives it as we come to know more and more who He is. And we see that, that though He is a God of mercy and tenderness and compassion, that when it comes to His worship, He is very serious. Um, I believe even, even in churches like ours who I think, I believe, aspire to a, a holy and, and scriptural worship, I believe that we have uh, only begun to scratch the surface of the real severity of entering into the presence of God and worship. And so this is one of those scenes where we, we see just how serious God takes His worship and His name and His glory. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now I'll point out, I didn't come up with this on my own, but it's very interesting that as the, I think it would be the cousins of Nadab and Abihu are summoned to bring, to carry their bodies out. It says they carried them out in their, their coats. Something about this fire that came out from the sanctuary and consumed them, killed them, and yet left their coats intact enough to carry them out. And uh, one, one uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, he says that this is evidence that this fire was not just a regular fire. It's not as if there was just a, a flaming up of, of, a, of a fire, but this was the very fire of God, the, 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 the outpouring of God Himself coming out and consuming these two young men in front of their father, in front of the, the people, uh, as, as a, an example to the people. Early on, I'm not going to be worshipped in the way that you come up with in your own mind. You're, you're going to revere me. So again, we see God takes His worship very seriously. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank You for the opportunity that we have and the, the privilege to come into Your presence and worship. And we recognize even as we approach the throne of grace and as we approach Your Word that we 
in ourselves have not a ground to stand upon. Lord, even as regenerate saints, uh, we have much corruption in us. We, we must come by means of, of another. And we come to stand upon the righteousness of Christ alone and, and to plead His work on our behalf. Uh, we know that our worship is, is faulty and it is at its, in, in its deepest roots so self-centered. Our singing, Lord, as we sing, we concern ourselves with, with uh, what other people might hear, what other people might think as we... As we give attention to your word, we, we get three or four words in and our minds are so quickly drawn away to, to some other thought or some other conversation or, or some noise that so easily distracts us. And I can't help but imagine that those children of Israel that sat at the foot of the mountain there would not have been so easily distracted because they saw your very presence and they trembled. Lord, we, we do not approach a mountain that cannot be touched. We know that we come to Mount Zion we assemble as the church of the firstborn. And so we have a mediation and a blood that, that speaks for us and, and beckons us to come. But Lord, I pray that we would never get the impression that we might come flippantly, without fear and trembling. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So just to repeat or recap what we saw in paragraph 1. God ought to be worshipped. He's created us and given us what has been called the light of nature. We have some sort of rational faculty within us whereby we can use our eyes and our senses and our brains and our reasoning to observe the created things. And God has given in those created things what we call general revelation. He's given some revelation of Himself. And when the creature with that reason created by God observes that general relation, general revelation given from God, it is perfectly reasonable, right, and proper that we then respond with worship. But God Himself must reveal to us how He is to be worshipped because we are fallen. We distort the revelation. We don't see it rightly. And when we do see some truth, our natural tendency in sin is to suppress that truth in our unrighteousness. Because of the effects of sin upon us, we are not members of a race that is overall headed in the right direction. So that whatever comes to us most simply or most naturally is generally what God will accept as proper worship. It's the opposite of that. The opposite is true. The thoughts and intentions of our hearts are only evil continually, Scripture says. And so everything that we could concoct on our own would be an abomination to God because of sin. Though we can see the truth of God in nature, and we do have the law of God written on our hearts by nature, remember because of the fall, our hearts... Apart from Christ, our hearts of stone. The law in fallen men is a dead letter. It does not save. It serves only to condemn. It cannot give them life. We, we have these revelations from God, but we distort it. Now we, hopefully, again, the, the majority of us in here are regenerated believers. And so we must take that into account. But even as regenerated saints, we still 
need God to give special revelation to reveal Himself fully and then teach us what it is to obey Him and especially what it is to worship Him. Because, as we said two weeks ago, He's not like us. He does not function, He does not operate, He does not think the way we think, especially now that we have this corruption and sin that dwells in our members And so those were the two ideas in that first paragraph. Now, as is often the case in the confession, the first paragraph in a chapter usually contains the bulk of the material, and then the other paragraphs open it up and expand upon it. And so that's what's going to happen. Those two ideas are going to encompass the rest of the chapter. Here in paragraph 2, we're going to consider more closely the God that we worship, the God who by nature ought to be worshipped and deserves our worship, and then in paragraphs 3 through 8, we'll look at the, the, the methods and means that God has revealed for us to worship Him. So we're, we're coming back full circle to our starting place, the worship of God, but specifically, and I've entitled this paragraph, the object of our worship. The object of our worship. And the first thing that we see is that we are to worship the Holy Trinity exhaustively. We are to worship the Holy Trinity exhaustively. We saw again in paragraph 1 that the light of nature shows that there is a God. And then several attributes of this God were listed. He hath lordship and sovereignty over all. He's just. He's good. He doth good to all. That's this God. Then in the second sentence, there was a reference to uh, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God. Now this brings us to a, a crucial point in Christian doctrine that is now made more clear in paragraph 2. Namely, that when the Christian speaks of God and of worshiping God in particular, we have in mind a specific concept of a specific God. We're not interested in worshiping God in the abstract We're not interested in worshiping or or maintaining some form of generic deism that there is a God somewhere. The Scriptures do not present us with an idea of God this way. The man upstairs or or a higher power or, or, or something like that. They present us with a very specific, particular, personal God. Now, a lot of times you'll hear apologists, and usually this comes into the realm of the, the, the evidential apologist who will use things in creation to then reason to the point that there is a God in a debate against an atheist, somebody who believes that there is no God. And, and they might be able to accomplish that task. See, based on this in general revelation and this in general revelation, they might be able to say, therefore, we know that there is a God. But to come to the conclusion that there is a God is still to fall short of Christian doctrine. We are not interested in a God, but the God. And if our worship is to be aimed properly, or to use the, the language we've seen, acceptable to God, then it must be aimed at the one true God who's revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. Any worship, anything that we call worship, doesn't matter what we do, no matter how pious, no, ha- no matter how solemn we might be, if it's not given to this one and only God, it is useless and vain idolatry. We must 
know the true God. Think of a, a bowler. Maybe you've actually been in this situation where you're bowling and you've got the, the holes in the ball are a little too tight. And so when you go to, to bowl, it sticks and you sling it over into another lane. But you get a strike. Imagine that. Now you go back to the TV that shows the score and you're watching it. You're watching. Nothing happens. It doesn't matter that you got a strike over there. That's the point. You've got to get a strike here. This is your lane. When it comes to our, our worship, whatever we do and call it worship, if, if we fail to ascribe our worship to the right object, it is essentially no worship at all. Now in our confession, we've already discussed the God of, of the Bible in chapter 2. And I just want to give two brief references from that paragraph, or that chapter, paragraph 1. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself. Paragraph 3. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see there, this. it's a very simple, and yet it is a profound, and it is a, an incomprehensible truth. There is one God, and in this one God there are three subsistences, or we typically say persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And any so-called worship whose object is not this one God in these three persons is idolatry. Now this paragraph begins this way. Chapter 22, paragraph 2. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, religious worship is to be given to the triune God of the Bible exhaustively. We're reminded first of our topic, religious worship. Now you've often heard people say, well, Christianity is, is it's a, not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, religion, biblically speaking, and I say biblically speaking because religion is a Bible word. It's a scriptural term. Religion refers to the outward manifestation and display of the inward and spiritual realities that one professes. That's your religion, James 1. You know the text. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There is a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Now, when it comes to my or your legal standing with God and the initial acts of God in saving a person, their initial response in repentance and faith, it is true that religion does not enter the picture. What we do does not come into play there because that's what religion is. Religion is the outworking of what God has done in us. It's, it's to think of the phrase in Philippians when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that working out would be religion. Why? For it is God who works in you. He works in, and religion is the working out, the living of our faith. And so Christianity, as a comprehensive worldview and system of faith, is a religion by definition. It involves commands from God on how we should live as Christians in this world. And that's Religion, the living out of our faith. And so, our worship is to be religious worship. It's to be worship 
that is an automatic outworking of our faith. What God is working in us ought to come out in worship. Christianity is a religion in this sense. It, it has been handed down to us as the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. We've been handed down uh, the pattern of sound words, a, a body of divinity as the old writers would, would, would call their systematic theology. We've been given a body of divinity, a collection, a, a, a summary of the revelation of God. And having come down from the, through the ages and with the Scriptures, we are the recipients of God-given traditions, God-given practices, even God-given holy days, 52 of them a year. All of this shows us that we are by definition a part of a religion with its own form of worship. And there is clearly revealed in this religion an indisputable object of worship which forms the bedrock of our religion. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the God of the Christian religion. If we remove this God or we remove some truth from the way that this God has revealed Himself to us, we have, we have vacated Christianity. We've, we've left Christianity. We can call it Christianity, but there's only one God in Christianity, and it is this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're talking about religious worship, the working out of our religion, our faith. Religious worship, it says, is to be given to God. Now this is obviously the force of the first of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now that word before does not mean in front, in a line of other gods, as if God were saying, now amongst all of your gods, just make sure that I'm first and I'm preeminent. The word before means around, in my presence, near me, in front where I can see it. In other words, he's saying the worship of God is to renounce all other gods. If you're going to worship me, he says, you've got to renounce all others. The confession points us to Matthew 4, verses 9 and 10, the words of Christ. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. It seems like such a simple truth, right? It seems so basic and so fundamental, and yet this was a weapon in the arsenal of Christ. No. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. A very basic tenet of the faith, a foundational and fundamental tenet of our faith that we, I think we, we gloss over very quickly because we don't realize how pervasive idolatry is in our own hearts. Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. 
Have I not told you from of old and declare it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The omniscient God says, I don't know of any other gods. And I know everything. Any true religious worship that calls itself Christian must be worshiped directed to this one God. He has a name. His name is Yahweh. It's not just a God, the idea of God, a higher power, the, the, the spirit in the sky. No, it's this God, a personal, particular, named and revealed God. Notice also that worship is an offering. Religious worship is to be given to God. Religious worship is to be given to God. This is what was often typified in the Old Covenant through the offering of sacrifices, the language of an offering or a gift. This is important. Worship, whether it be alone, by yourself, whether it be family worship, whether it be here, worship is not something that we do that is simply about God. And a lot of times worship can be that way, like we've got together to plan a surprise birthday party. And we're talking about somebody that's not here. We're singing about somebody that's not here. That's not worship. Worship is something that we do as a gift from God. We're not here to treat God as an outside subject, but we're here to actually have individual dealings with this God. That's what worship is. It's an individual transaction between you, the worshiper, and God. Or as a congregation, as we collectively come together and we interact with God. It's a gift from us to Him. An offering. Now what does that imply? If we put these things together, we must be worshiping the God of the Bible. It's something that we offer to Him. What does this imply? It necessitates that we know God. That you have God, the revealed God, in your mind and in your heart as you worship, that you're aiming at giving something to God and Him receiving that worship, which means that our worship must be thoughtful. It must be intellectual, informed, rational, reasonable. Our minds need to be full of who this God is so that we can bring that God and what He's revealed of Himself into our consciousness and then offer Him worship. In worship, this is important. In worship, the worshiper, this is biblical language, draws near to an omnipresent God. Now think about that. All of God is everywhere. God is immobile. All of God is in all places, at all times, and yet, in worship, we are said to draw near to Him. Now, how can that be? How, how, how do we get closer to a God who is everywhere? It can't be bodily, because He's, all, he's, he's in all places. It must be in, in the inner man, the soul. The worshiper draws near to an omnipresent God as their own soul goes out to Him in faith and in the truth of who He is, and as that truth bears witness upon the conscience in a more focused way than perhaps might be uh, happening in regular discourse or regular life. Jeremiah Burroughs said to worship is to tender up homage 
that is due from a creature, a creature to the infinite Creator. He said the duties of God's worship are those duties whereby the soul comes to draw nigh near to God. As I said to the men yesterday, if you take notice, all of the means of grace, the things that we call means of grace, they all relate in some way to the Word of God. Somehow. We, we, we preach the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. We, we come to the Lord's table and, and baptism. These are sacraments. These are visible things that are, that are showing our eyeballs what the Word of God teaches. They're all ways that the Word of God feeds us. Now, why is that? It's because in the Word of God, we're learning about God. He's teaching us of Himself. The more that we hear and see and read the Word of God, the more our consciousness is being filled up with the truth of who God is. When God's self-revelation is brought to bear upon us, then our minds and our hearts will be filled with the truth of who God is. And in that sense, by faith, we are drawing near to God. Now, I tried to think of... You know, how, could, how could we even comprehend this in, in regular discourse? And the best thing I could, I could think of was one another. If I'm not in your presence and somebody says your name or I just think of you, well, I, I got an idea of who you are. If it's tomorrow, I could say, well, I just seen them yesterday. And, and I, I might could remember you know, what color shirt you had on. I might could remember something you said. And, and there are some, some fundamental facts. This, he is married to her and they have these children. There are some things that I know, but there's still in that moment of conception a lot that is left really to the imagination. And maybe if it's been a long time since we've been together, maybe even somebody's physical appearance sort of begins to blur in our minds. But then if you came into my presence, right then if you drew physically near to me, all of a sudden all of those um, blanks that were left in my imagination of, of who you are would become more full. I see your, your hair color. I see your shirt. I see your standing here. I see your size. More of who you are, the reality of who you are, would be pressed upon my consciousness, my awareness of who you are. This, this is something of what happens when we draw near to God in worship, but that only works if the truth of who God is fills in the blanks so that we actually know and can contemplate who God is. He, he doesn't come and stand like this. So we're not thinking of what color shirt He's wearing or, or, or those types of things. Well, this is what we have. And so we must have our minds full of who He is, especially when it comes to particular acts that we call worship. We must be thinking, immortal, God is immortal. Invisible, God is invisible. He's the only wise God. He has all wisdom. These things, we're singing them to bring into our minds who God is and at the same time reverberate back to Him these things as praises. We worship you because you're immortal. We worship you because you're invisible. We worship you because you are God only wise. That's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're bringing in and then spewing forth back out all of who God is, the truth of who God is. That's why it has to be thoughtful, intellectual, informed, rational, reasonable. We, we don't just say, you know, get out of your mind and, and just you know, let everything go and just... Just feel the moment. No, that's not what we do. That's not what God wants us to do. Now again, as I've said, this doesn't mean that we 
we set aside all form of emotions. I believe that when we are, are, are filled with the truth of who God is, really, that's going to stir the affections in the heart of a believer. Now, now, that might look different for different people. It might come out differently in different people. But there's going to be some sort of stirring in the soul because we're going to realize this is the one that I love. And I, I believe that that comes from the Spirit bearing witness within us. The Spirit is saying, that's Him. Yes, that's Him. We draw near to give worship as a gift. To God In Matthew 5, Jesus said, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now we could say, well, I guess that doesn't apply to us because we don't bring gifts to the altar, right? Woo. No. The point is worship. This is how they understood worship. You're coming to worship, and you remember, oh, my brother has something against me. He says, it'd be better if you just go settle that. Then come and offer your gift. Then come and worship the Lord because worship is seen as something we offer to God. The God that we, we trust, we, we know and have, have true and right thoughts and understanding of who He is. And central to God's revelation is His nature as one in essence and three in person. One in essence, three in person. One God, three persons. One what, three who's. That's not revealed in general revelation. No matter how many people tell you, you know, look at this egg. You've got the shell and you've got, just say no. Well, you look at this water. You know, if it's, if it's above 32 degrees, it's wet. But then if it's below 32 degrees, it's ice. But then if it gets hot, it boils, it turns into gas. No, the, this is not revealed in creation. This is not general revelation. It's not known by natural man that God exists one in essence, three in person. And it would be eternally unknown if God had not revealed it to us. And even with God's revelation, we can't fully grasp it. It's, it's, it is futile, infantile, ignorant at best to even try to say, well, the Trinity is kind of like this. Just stop. We don't need to do that. God does not need us to come up with a visual representation or something to try to understand Him. He says, I've given you all that you need here in His Word. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, again, we go back to the second chapter, paragraph 3, which says, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. This is the God of the Bible, the Christian God, the only God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There are not three gods, but one 
God. If we are to worship this God, then we must worship the God in Trin- this God in Trinity exhaustively. That means all three persons. We worship all three as one God. We worship one God in all three persons. We worship all three distinctly as in, in whatever manner or ways relate to that, that which distinguishes them. They're, we might say they're peculiar works. What, what does the Father do in Himself? What has the Son accomplished? The Father didn't die on the cross. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. What has the Spirit done? The Father has not indwelt the souls of believers. The, 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 the Spirit has not... You go back and forth. You go through and you begin to distinguish their peculiar works. And then you can begin to render worship in that way. The three distinctly, but as you worship the three, you're worshiping one. We worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Spirit. To worship the Son or the Spirit is not less honoring to God than worshiping the Father. To worship the Father is not more honoring to God than worshiping the Son or the Spirit. But to ignore persons in your worship is manifest or is to manifest a failure to lay hold on the revealed God of Scripture. We are to worship God exhaustively. Now that don't take that to mean, well, I'm going to sing two songs about the Father. And then I'm going to sing two songs about the Son. And then I'm going to sing two songs about the Spirit. Why? Because even when you read Revelation, you'll see that the revelation of the persons is not... You take 22 books on the Father, 22 books on the Son, 22 books on... It's not given to us like that. We, We worship based on the revelation that's been given. But we must worship the Holy Trinity exhaustively in three persons. Secondly, we are to worship the Holy Trinity exclusively. Not only do we engage in worship to all three persons exhaustively, ignoring none, but we are also to worship this God in three persons exclusively. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. Now notice that language. We worship God. We worship God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone. Not them, Him. It's very interesting, and, and, and I think uh, done intentionally. Now this is not to say that the three persons of the Trinity <clears throat> are not distinct from each other. There's nothing wrong with referring to them in the plural as the persons or subsistences, if you would like. But at the same time, we have to always keep in mind the true doctrine of the Holy Trinity. To worship Father, Son, and Spirit, and Him alone. Who? Him who? God. One God. Three persons. And we have biblical warrant from this in Matthew 28, 18 and 19. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The three persons are named, but it doesn't say names. Why? It's it's to emphasize this truth. One God, one divine name, three persons, three, three subsistences. To make the point negatively, to Him alone, not 
to angels, saints, or any other creatures. We are not to worship angels or render religious worship to angels. Now that seems easy to us, right? Duh. Don't worship angels. We've never seen an angel. In Scripture, when people seen angels, like John in Revelation 19, he fell down in worship. There was, there's something about the, 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 the being of an angel that drew something out of John. Revelation 19, John says, And I fell down at his feet to worship him. He didn't say, I fell down at his feet afraid. I fell down to worship. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Angels are no doubt glorious beings which would draw from us awe and fear. And I would imagine some of this is connected with the fact that pretty much every time you see the manifestation of the divine presence of God, angels are His attendants. They're always there and yet not to be worshipped. We do not worship angels. Colossians 2.18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That word worship there is actually the word religion from James. The, the religion of angels. This might have been a tendency among the Jews to worship angels. In Hebrews 1, there's a, a long section showing Christ is superior to the angels. We don't worship angels. We're to worship God alone and not saints. Now this would have been pertinent in the times of the Reformation when the saints were, were venerated and treated as if they themselves were gods. In Acts chapter 10 it says that Peter, when Peter entered the home of Cornelius, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and, and saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Now notice in both of those instances with John and with Peter, the angel and or the angel and Peter, they both pointed out their nature. Don't worship me, I'm a servant like you. Worship God. Don't worship me, I'm a man. They're pointing out I'm not God. You don't worship me. Worship is to be given to God alone. Not to saints, not to any other creatures. As Paul describes the debauched human race in Romans 1, as a means to set up the fact that every mouth is stopped in the presence of God. He says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That worship, or that word worship, sabadzomai, means to revere, to express awe and devotion. They traded it. Traded the worship of God for the worship, the reverence, Expressing awe and devotion to creatures which ought to have been given to God. This is not merely the, the exclusively bowing down and praying. It's expressing that reverence and awe that is due to God alone to creatures. Any other creatures, that phrase summarizes everything, not God. There is a God, the Creator. And then there's everything, not God. The creature. True worship will exhaust the nature of God as three and one and one and three. And it will worship this God exclusively. Nothing else in all of creation may have our religious worship. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't other things that we might not, or that we, we can't honor, that we can't uh, ascribe worth and value to, but never 
remotely on the same plane as that which is due to God. Thirdly, we are to worship the Holy Trinity through an intermediary. An intermediary is one who mediates, who goes between two parties. And our confession says, since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. So we see that phrase, since the fall, we know that a dramatic change took place in the relationship between God and man in the fall. Prior to the fall, there was no sin. And therefore, worship was, in in the strict sense of the word, immediate. No mediator. Go straight to Him, Adam. Go go laud Him. Go praise Him. And and, and we don't know what that would have looked like. It would have been obedience to God, enjoyment of God. I would assume a resting in God and His works on the Sabbath day. But after the fall, sin comes into the picture. Man is separated from God. God's presence is taken from man. The first... Ichabod scene, the glory departs and man is cast away. Now since worship is drawing near to God and mankind has been alienated from God because of sin, then we cannot draw near to God as Adam once did. God's justice is too strict and too severe. God's goodness is too good. God's purity is too pure. We we can't worship immediately like that. We need a mediator. Since the fall, not without a mediator. We need a mediator, not just for salvation, not just for the atonement of sins, not just from being rescued from hell, but in our worship. We need a mediator. Since sin entered the picture, mankind has only been able to worship God through a mediator, a go-between. And, and I didn't go very far with this, but it was pointed out at lunchtime, since the fall, since Adam and Eve fell, worship to God was rendered by way of a mediator. Mankind had to have mediation. Mankind needs one who can deal gently with men in their infirmity and who can deal closely with God in His purity and holiness. There must be one who can meet man where he is and take his worship and offering and present it to God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And apart from that work, our very best worship is full of sin, is full of infirmity, and God would vomit it out. He could lay out every, perfect, every stipulation perfectly, and we could follow it all perfectly, but without a mediator, it would be nauseating to God because we are sinners. We're rebels. Not without a mediator, it says, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2, 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. One mediator since the fall. We have to have a mediator. There's only ever been one mediator of man's worship to God. Yes, there were institutions that God set up on earth that used men to point to and prefigure and typify the Christ. But there's only ever been one true mediator between God and men. We must have a mediator if we are to worship God, if we are to draw near to Him. And there's only one who can fill that role as mediator, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Because He is true man, He can sympathize with our infirmities. Because He is God, He can present our worship to the Father. Because He's paid our sin debt and made happy the Father's justice, 
He alone has the right to present His people before His Father. And His people are represented before the Father in the man Christ Jesus. In His very presence there. Like the priest who would go into the Holy of Holies bearing the names on His shoulders and on His breastplate. So Christ there in the presence of the Father bears the people of God on His shoulders and on His heart. In the presence of God, He's our mediator. It's not just an atoning work. It's not just the removal of sins, but our very worship has to be mediated by Christ. And He does it. That's the thing, He does it. Willingly, gladly, freely to us. Now this isn't merely negative. And this is where I want to conclude. It's not merely negative. We We don't stop by putting forth that no one can come to the Father except through Christ. But then we go on to proclaim the opposite truth. Anyone may come if they will come through Christ. This is the way Christ spoke. Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, Christ speaking, He says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him... As Calvinists, we usually stop there, right? Nobody knows the Father except the Son. The Son's got to reveal Him. That's not where Christ stopped. Christ says, Come to Me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. See, Christ here points out the very same truth that He pointed out in John 14, that only the Son has the right of this immediate relationship with the Father. Only the Son can reveal the Father. But that doesn't cause Him to clam up and to give a cold shoulder to men until they evidence some sort of fruits that they might be among the elect. But rather, as He ponders this truth, all things have been given to me by my Father. No one comes to the Father except through Me. No one, no one can know the Father except to whom the, those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then He erupts. Come to Me. It's Me. The Father has, has placed this authority in the Son. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So, come to Me. All who weary and are heavy laden, here I am. That's what He's saying. The Father has granted the Son to be the only mediator between God and men. And the Son stands beckoning all who would come. Then come to Me. It's not as if God has has merely stood afar off and says, well, nobody's going to know Me except those to whom My Son chooses to reveal Me. And then the Son says, well, we'll, we'll keep it a secret between us and I'll only... No, He says, then come. I'm here. The Father has sent the Son to reveal Himself to men. He, he beckons men to come. So, yes, we, we, we must have a mediator. That is a necessity. But we do have a mediator. A happy, willing, self-offering mediator. And it works. He, he does the job, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.18. Through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit. By the Spirit to the Father. So several things to summarize this. Number one, if we are to worship, we must worship the one true God. 
Number two, we are to worship God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three, nothing else in all creation can have our worship. Four, the only way we can confidently draw near and worship is through the mediation of Christ. And Christ Himself calls all who will to come. One dictionary, I was looking at all of the words for, that are translated worship in our English Bibles and just reading the definitions of these various terms and how they're used. And it, it concluded by saying that worship is the direct acknowledgement to God of His nature, attributes, ways, and claims, whether by the outgoing of the heart in praise and thanksgiving or by deeds done in such acknowledgement. In other words, we can praise God for who He is. We can thank God for who He is. Or we can also do what God has commanded, acknowledging the various persons and works of the Godhead in our deeds. As we work, in Colossians, we, we do our labor as unto the Lord. And so we acknowledge that. Lord, I'm going to work. Father, would you, would you help me? Would you send forth your Spirit to fill me, to strengthen me, so that I might work as if Christ Himself were standing as my boss and labor as unto the Lord? And when you do that, acknowledging the various persons in their functions, you're worshiping in a Trinitarian way. That's, that's rendering to the Godhead the praises due to the persons in their unique roles. It's all worship, and that's why we, we are able to, to do very mundane things as acts of worship, and especially when we come into the, the assembly, we're able to sing songs. We can sing truth all day long. Somebody else might benefit from our vocalizing of a truth, and we not worship a bit, because our minds are not are not thoughtful, are not engaged in rendering to God a service. And we'll see more ways in which we worship God in the weeks to come. As I said at lunch, I'm really excited, especially about the next paragraph with regard to prayer. And so, uh, be reading through that. It's a, it's a good paragraph. Read it. Read it slowly and think about it. Um, I won't be able to do it justice. You might get more out of it reading it by yourself than I'll be able to give it in teaching it. But it's, it's really helpful. Um, and then we'll get into corporate worship as well. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll stand and sing the doxology together.